self-knowing, a quiet passion. Um, everything that uh, I have to say really is an expression of one or another of those words, and particularly in combination. Uh, more <clears throat> familiar term is self-knowledge, which we've all heard. Uh, I use them interchangeably, except uh, I think, as you'll see, there's a significant difference. Knowledge is something that you accumulate. That is, you learn something, and then it gets stored in the brain, and then you can draw upon it. Uh, that's useful for all kinds of reasons, quite obvious. And it can also include knowledge about yourself. That is, uh, people have filled up notebooks, insights into yourself, or biographies. And it's, it's the story of your life in terms of, let's say, the experiences you've had, uh, outer events that, have, uh, f that feature the different transitions you've made in life, and perhaps referring also to your inner experiences. But self-knowing is a bit different. Uh, Self-knowing is something that's valuable in the moment, and then that's it. It's no, we're not storing it up. That is, it's this attentiveness to how we're living right here and right now. And there's a seeing, especially as it becomes clearer and clearer with practice. Uh, that's the whole cutting edge of Vipassana meditation. There's no Vipassana meditation without clear seeing. It's not, uh, you can read the Buddha, everything the Buddha said, and memorize it and chant it. But if you haven't developed the ability to see clearly, particularly into yourself, but also outside yourself, uh, nothing much is going to happen. Some improvement, there's some good values in it. The Buddhist teachings see, seem to be, uh, to me, are quite logical, sensible, sane. And if you try to live according to them, that can improve your life. But I don't think of that would, in and of itself has much transformative power. It would just improve the patterns that you have now, perhaps for improved patterns, but it'll still be patterns. Self-knowing is the ability, in a very fresh way, to see how things are right in this moment and to learn from it. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to sometimes uh, see a pattern or reflect on what's, what you've just learned or what's happening, of course. But, but the, the power of it is in the clear seeing that is not based on the past. It has nothing to do whatever, with whatever else you've learned or know. That's the whole point. It's fresh. You're not seeing the present moment through yesterday's eyes. I think that'll become clearer as we go on. Yesterday's eyes is our conditioning, our memory. We've had lots of things poured into our brain from childhood on. We've had lots of experiences, wonderful ones, wounds. It's all there. It's all stored up. We can come to know that experience. And certainly uh, a large part, and at the beginning, perhaps the major part, of insight meditation is, coming to, is for that content to reveal itself, for that content to uh, come out and disclose itself so that we can get to know it, see it for what it is, but of course, and also let it go.
We don't always want to do that. We sometimes savor, even our wounds are treated as very, very precious. We don't want to, I don't mean to have amnesia. What I mean is to let go of the attachment to them. Uh, so meditation, in that sense, at the beginning is very similar to a, a lot of what happens in, in psychotherapy, I would think, or just any sensitive person. I see a familiar face. Uh, in terms of self-knowledge, in terms of... Okay, hi. <laughs> Actually, I do have to say something. This is Maury Stein, an old friend who I haven't seen in a long time. We taught at the same university at Brandeis for quite a while, and he played a very important role in my life that affects what's going on here. Because at the time, I got interested in all this. It was the beginning of the end of my academic career. Uh, Maury, Maury hastened it. He hastened me out the door. <laughs> because no matter what harebrained scheme I had about what I was going to teach, I called it all new directions in social psychology. But it was really the beginnings of all this stuff. Maury said, great, full speed ahead. And most of the rest of the university were looking up at the sky, scratching their head. <laughs> Uh, including some of our other colleagues, but more stuck behind me, and so I got more and more audacious as time went on, and then finally they threw me out. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, my default job. <laughs> uh, Self-knowing. Now that sounds self-evident. And to begin with, that's a word we use all the time. It points to where we look. Right here, here. Uh, and it's a very useful word, and it's okay to use it. We all use it. Uh, but as your practice develops, and more and more on the level of the verbal teachings of the Buddha, the doctrine, but more important as you start to examine what you think of as being yourself, myself, um, a lot of the practice has to do with investigating what that means. It's another way of putting it is investigating what we call the ego, to find out what, what is really happening when me is concerned, when I am concerned, when mine is concerned. What's the nature of it? Is it really so solid uh, without getting ahead of, of things? Uh, a quiet passion. It's quiet in the sense that if you go to meditation retreats, and some of them can be months, what you'll see is people sitting silently uh, for long periods of time. There's also talking, uh, interviews, talking to your teacher and so forth, or any of the retreats here or the practice groups. Uh, when we think of the term passion, we don't think of that. But in order to keep doing this, that is, if there isn't a passion to understand yourself, and understanding yourself here doesn't mean just chronic introspection, which we already know how to do. We're masters of it. It's this clear seeing into our nature. If there isn't a passion for it, uh, nothing much is going to happen. So a person can be sitting silently for extended periods of time, but inside there's a flame going that keeps them there because that keeps you there uh, as the full range of your experience comes through. A lot of it is not what we want to attend to, like fear, like loneliness, and so forth. Uh, so it's quiet in the sense that it's uh, unobtrusive and maybe not evident 
that, uh, another way of putting it is urgent. Unless you see the urgency of understanding yourself. Not because someone told you that it's a good thing for you, like cod liver oil or something. Because you realize that the quality of your life uh, literally depends on the degree to which you understand how you're living, what you're doing, why you're doing it. The fundamental spiritual question, who am I? Um, it, that requires interest. That's another synonym for it. Okay. Uh, where we left off, we've, I, I don't know, maybe si we've had there been about six or five or six talks, I'm not sure. We left off um, finishing up self-knowing has to do with knowing the body, the nature of the body, and went into that to some, with some detail the last time. Um, one aspect of it, a major aspect in the Buddhist teaching, is to pay attention to the life of the body. What is this body? What is it? And to come at it in a fresh way begin to see certain truths that are self-evident, but they're not a, a exactly on our agenda. For example, that this body must age, it must grow ill, and it must die. For, for all of us, every one of us, uh, to begin to see that. Now that, uh, you, you, we all know that, even if you never took even a peek inside yourself, uh, it's obvious people we love have already died. And we know it's true. Uh, but when it becomes uh, a liberating practice is when you look at the way you're experiencing that fact in yourself so that you can get free of the fear, of the terror, or whatever it is that characterizes your relationship to the, uh, the uh, inevitable fate of this body. It's not negotiable. There's only one direction that it's going in. And it's natural. It's not weird. It's not something that went wrong, a mistake. It's the way things are. Now, I didn't design this, so don't blame me. <laughs> but that's the way it is. If you get born, then you must go through this, whether you're a flower or a plant or an animal or a person, a rock. Everything that comes into existence seems to go out of existence. Uh, to make peace with that, and the only way to really make peace with that is to see how we're not at peace. Most people are not. And there are techniques and methods to help us do that, because that's often a very difficult uh, emotion to examine and so forth. It's also to, to learn how to uh, see that, uh, the, that in a very profound sense, this body, vital as it is, does not belong to us. It finally, in a profound way, is not us. It's something that uh, we definitely inhabit and if we're sensible we'll take good care of it because we need it. One image, the way a cavalry officer needs to take care uh, of, uh, the of the horse because you could, the, the, you, if you're a soldier fighting on a horse you're not the horse but you better take good care of the horse if you want to survive because it's necessary. And so we begin to develop a perspective and observe the life of the body very, very carefully. <coughs> we, we spend time observing what we call pain, all the different sensations and energies that make up uh, what we call the body. Uh, we went into that in some detail. Another, um, where we left off, another way in which 
coming to know the body um, is very, very helpful and, a, and a, an aspect of our practice is just uh, becoming more acquainted with this body so we, we know how to take care of it. That has to do uh, with observing the body in terms of its needs for food, a very obvious one. Now, most of us have been conditioned. We have certain traditional tastes or acquired tastes, and it's mainly pleasure or our appearance. I neglected to mention that I went into some detail last time about a main way in which we relate to the body has to do with its appearance. And an immense amount of suffering uh, comes about because of our struggle with the body to look a certain way, to be a certain way. Uh, that one must be obvious to you as well. Uh, here, it's starting in a fresh way. There are endless theories now as to what kind of diet you should have. and uh, I'm not going to advocate any particular diet. Just to, to say that if you pay attention, you're going to begin to notice which foods and how much of these foods and under different conditions are beneficial for you. Uh, it's good if it tastes good because you're more likely to eat it. But a lot of things that taste good, uh, we know it. We taste it, we enjoy it, and then hours later we whine about, we're not going to eat that again. Then uh, we start in again and again and again. Uh, we begin to see how much uh, water and rest, how much exercise. In short, uh, it's an affectionate, loving, respectful relationship to the body. Now, if you're a meditator, there's a, a, a slightly different accent on it, or it's a, a certain um, aspect of bodily care that would be particularly of interest to you. And that's the quality of the mind. Uh, the mind uh, has a lot to do with the quality of the nervous system, of the brain. And so different diets affect the energy of the mind. Some diets affect the mind uh, so that we, we are much more dull, heavy, sleepy. Other diets seem to contribute to the mind being restless, agitated. Some kinds of foods and ways of eating and living incline the mind to be more calm and clear, which is what we want as meditators. And again, not advocating a particular diet, but each one of us can learn through experimentation uh, by paying attention. The same term that you hear over and over again, for those of you who knew mindfulness, you'll hear it till it's coming out of your ears, if you come here again. <laughs> attention, mindfulness, we try to mix it up with some synonyms. <laughs> <laughs> Awareness, presence, probably a few more. Or we might use uh, a Pali or Sanskrit words, and then you think it's really important. <laughs> Apamada. Oh, that must be important. Sati. Um, you need a strong nervous system uh, and a functioning brain, because let's take the nervous system. As you go uh, more deeply into meditation, you awaken a very refined kind of energy. And it's very helpful if the nervous system is adequate to contain the energy. Sometimes you'll see uh, some people, this is not always the case, doing a lot of shaking or having some uh, uh, emotional problems that have to do with releasing, in a sense, high voltage 
prematurely, or let's say too much for the wires to carry. And so things, dietary uh, aids that help the nervous system be strong are useful. It's a whole science unto itself. And modern science is making, I think, a very important contribution. Whole science of nutrition. We're learning a tremendous amount about, how, about the brain now. Okay. That, but this is your learning. No matter what you find from scientific studies, you have to pay attention to your body at a particular time and place with particular foods. And uh, for me, it's uh, actually joyful. It's not drudgery. Uh, it's just part of being alive to, to see that what you put in here, in your mouth, has consequences, obviously. What you drink, certain fluids called alcohol, has certain consequences. But so does everything that we put in the system. And so uh, in Buddhism, that's not emphasized so much. The Buddha uh, talks mainly about moderation. Uh, and clearly, he recognizes that, that health is useful obvious, very helpful. Uh, but also, in terms of exercise, I went on a uh, pilgrimage to the holy places of the Buddha <coughs> some years ago in India. And it's astonishing how much of India the Buddha and a lot of the followers covered on foot. I don't mean all in one day. Uh, they kept in shape. Walking is, is still one of the best exercises you can do. Natural, joyful walking. If it is not done you know, there's a certain, I hope, well, I don't know, maybe some of you, I pass uh, joggers a lot, and there's one kind of jogger. I call them the joyless <laughs> joggers. It's, this is how the faces are all, it's, uh, it's, they have, they're timing it, every, it's, it's, it's totally medicinal. And then there are others who just enjoy moving. Uh, so there are various ways, and of course yoga is a, an ancient discipline that meditators have made use of. We don't know, it goes way, way back. Okay, um, I'd like to move on now and talk about relationship as part of self-knowledge. But uh, you may be a little disappointed, I hope not totally. Um, relationship as a mirror. I'm using the term relationship in a very general way. It includes our relationship with each other, and certainly there'll be some, something to say about that this evening. But uh, to be alive is to be in relationship. That is, relationship in, in movement is going on all the time. So why is it a mirror? How is it a mirror? Let's say if you look in a mirror, external mirror, it shows you back about your face. And you see perhaps uh, you need a shave or uh, you need to rub, uh, buy some more creams at Bread and Circus or you have to get, uh, start combing your hair this way over the bald spot <laughs> so that it looks like it's growing out of there, but we all know it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> or suddenly, see, you've got to grow a beard because you're losing it up here, so plant some down here. <laughs> There are all kinds of, the Buddha referred to hair as ignorance grass. We're quite obsessed with grass, with hair. <laughs> I don't, both sometimes, <laughs> different kind of grass. Um, that's all over, isn't it? No one smokes grass anymore, do they? <laughs> okay. It's a mirror in the following way. 
When you uh, are in the presence of anything, an object, a tree, a person, an animal, anything you want to tell me, uh, you have a reaction. So in, in this sense, the object is teaching you something about yourself. If you're only willing to pay attention, it's teaching you something about yourself. Uh, so that all day long, while we're in the presence of what's happening, uh, we have reactions uh, many of them are obvious, of like, dislike, or neutrality. That's the central one. All day long. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's, uh, it's automatic. It's happening. Um, if you pay attention, you'll see, well, what is my relationship to nature? Well, it shows you. Let's say you just sit down sometimes, sit on a park bench and look at a tree or a plant. Uh, you may find that you don't want to look, you, you think of yourself as loving nature, but you won't want to look at it for too long. Or if you do, suddenly thoughts may come in, if you're very well educated, maybe botanical, uh, the name of it, and this, that, and the other, or the herb, and what it's good for. And, uh, and that's all knowledge, but it's between you and the plant, or the tree. So the tree has shown you that it's hard for you to just be with a plant or a tree just as it is, without the mind having to do something about it think about it or just go to a different subject or okay 30 seconds is enough to look at a tree for God's mm -hmm. sakes okay but if you can do take it on as a practice sit longer and it gets quite interesting and you may see a tree for the first time but not the word tree and then the distance between you and the tree feels like it's not there I'm not talking about space what I'm talking about is psychological distance the mind becomes clear and it's a that is really the clearest mirror, and a lot of what Vipassana meditation is about is uh, the techniques and methods and retreats and forms and talks that are designed to help the mind become very, very clear and steady. And uh, to widen our capacity to receive our own experience, to widen our capacity to receive our own experience. Now, for some people it sounds odd, why do we need training to experience our own experience? Because we don't really know how to do that, or we know very well what we're doing, but we have a rather narrow uh, door that's open to experience. That is, a lot of what's happening to us we don't like, and we don't want it to be there. And we live a lot of our life, see if this is so, everything I'm saying is for you to, to check and test. We live a, a good deal of our life, in an imagined future, or, or reclaiming a past, uh, bringing it up that's over with. And even when we're in the present, it's a, often a conceptual present. We've got all kinds of ideas about what the present is. Uh, clear seeing is just what it sounds like. It's innocent, it's naive, it's fresh. There's no yesterday in it. You're seeing it with just these eyes, that have, your personality is not there, your ethnic group, your gender, your race, your age, your, all the different things that do color how we see things, our conditioning. And so the mirror, one uh, in the Chinese tradition, they would often talk about a lot of the practices polishing the mirror. There's more to it, but that's a major part of it. And a lot of what we're doing is polishing the mirror. And we, we don't have to wait until we're perfect. But let's move on to relationship, relationship this evening. At least get that started. Because that's a huge subject. 
I'm not a therapist, nor a couples counselor, a family therapist, and no, none of that. Uh, but if you're alive, relationship is central. It's crucial. Now, if we look at the state of the human race, uh, I, I, th I don't think I'm being uh, extreme in this judgment. But if you disagree, there'll be time for you to do that. Uh, the human race is absolutely uh, astonishingly brilliant when it comes to technology. Uh, we have very clean bathrooms, all kinds of wonderful things, especially technology. We've put tremendous energy into it. It's brilliant, and it's just all the time developing. And as, but the quality of our life is not. We have affluence, and we don't seem to know how to fully enjoy it very much. Or we get it, and it's at the expense of others who are miserable because we have all this affluence that we don't even fully enjoy because we don't know how to. Nothing wrong with affluence. In short, relationship, if you, I think this is just a truism, is a battlefield. Whether you look at the world scene or whether you look at your personal life, there are some people who, do, who are living harmonious relationships with the people who enter their lives. But if you're honest, probably, like all of us, we acknowledge that relationship is a hard one. Now, why is it that uh, we are so outstanding in every realm? Uh, in, some, in some sense, the, we haven't valued the quality of our life enough to make sure that each generation uh, is encouraged to give its best energy to try to understand how to live. Put it briefly, uh, the art of living uh, is not one we've mastered. We literally do not know how to live, at least not very well. Now, I'm not trying to, to speak in big uh, existential generalizations. It's for each of us to take that in for yourself. Do you know how to live? The art of living is wisdom. The whole point of Vipassana meditation is to learn how to live. And uh, the main way in which wisdom comes about is through this ability to receive our experience, to be able to clearly see how we actually live. Capital A italics, actually live from moment to moment. So the learning how to live comes out of not a formula, although the words of the wise people who have lived before us and who exist right now are to be reflected on and to, to be studied. But finally, uh, it's about the fact of our actual life. And that's not an abstract theory. That's something that's unfolding each moment, and it's happening to you and to me. The practice includes that. Now, mirror, what, what do you mean by a mirror? How is that a mirror? How is relationship a mirror? And might that be something that helps us? It seems like there's nothing with a higher priority. At least for me, there isn't for the human race to learn how to live together. What good are all the things that we've invented? Do you think internet is going to change? If, if in information would have done it, we would have been taken care of a long time ago. We have more than enough information. That's not it. It's that self-understanding. In the Buddhist terms, ignorance is the problem. We've ignored how we live, so we don't understand ourselves well. We don't understand what a mind is. We don't understand the nature of reality very well. 
And as a result, we're creating problems for ourselves and others over and over again, and each generation seems to do it again and again. We can sign all the treaties we want and, and cut down the, the number of warheads and conferences and new legislation. I'm all for it. United Nations. But the problem's in the human mind. That must be pretty obvious if you look at it. The crisis is in human consciousness, not oil or energy or uh, that creates separation, division, in a big way when we look at the, at the news, but in small ways in our own lives. Now, it's a mirror in this sense. Uh, and if, if I can get this across tonight, even just this, I'd be really happy uh, that I at least have tried to do something a little bit useful. Whenever we're in the presence of, a, of another person, we have a reaction. You might say, well, no, I, I put down some money and I pick up the morning newspaper and um, I, don't ha I have neutral, there's no reaction to the guy who gave me or the lady who gave me the paper. Okay, that's what your reaction is. Fine. You might not have even, well, what was that person's features like? I don't know. I just wanted to get my paper and get out of there. Fine, that's what happened. I'm not saying that's of any consequence. I'm not saying you should uh, say, hi, Mr. Newspaper Man, uh, you know, tell me about yourself and I'll tell you. Uh, but all day long, and particularly when we're in the presence, let's say, of our fellow workers and bosses, and of course when we get into uh, families, children, parents, partners, uh, the whole rich array of relationships that make up life, we have a reaction. The reaction in, in terms of this teaching, and it's for you to test and see if it's so, they're for the most part conditioned. That is, they come at their mechanical, repetitive, um, they just happen. They're, they're not under our control. And what that conditioned reaction is has everything to do with our life story up until that time. What has happened to us thus far? Our education, the way we've been treated, the way climate, food, there's so many considerations that go into why we react a certain way. But a person comes in our presence, we have a reaction. It's a mirror in the sense that it gives you a chance to learn about yourself. I want to, uh, you might say, okay, it's there. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to learn about yourself. In fact, for the most part, we don't do that. We're far more interested in what caused the reaction, what produced the reaction, whether it's a person. For the moment, let's limit it to people because that's the big one. And, uh, you know, we have some awareness if we got, our feelings got hurt, particularly afterwards. Uh, the truth is, we worship our reactions. We pamper them. We love them. Uh, and that's different than becoming aware of your reactions. It, it's all the difference in the world. So that most of us live out our lives uh, coming mainly from that reactive place. What is called spontaneity uh, is just a very dramatic kind of reaction. You know, glorified a bit. Uh, and it's coming out of whatever the quality of your consciousness is, that's what your reaction is. Now, the commitment to practice is a commitment to begin to, it's not to deny the outer world or to not pay attention, but it's to shift the priorities around quite a bit so that you begin to see that your reaction to what is happening to you, that is, the person, let's say, 
is at least as important as what produced the reaction because the transformation comes from seeing the reaction. It gets, it gets short-circuited or transformed. I'll try to make that more vivid, concrete for you. So we've not spent a lot of time being aware of our reactions. We've just been too busy reacting. And we're proud of, I told that son of a, I told him what. Uh, so we have a whole uh, way. That, what I mean by we worship, I mean we give tr immense authority over to our reactions as being true, good, right, worthwhile, uh, justified, and so forth. We're very often uh, on, in the dimension of r a good, bad, or right, wrong. The Dharma attitude has to do with, it's more about understanding. Not just conceptual or intellectual understanding, it includes that. But the clear seeing helps you to see yourself. Uh, that's why uh, a lot of us don't want to do this work, finally. Now, the practice is equipping you. You don't just jump in. For example, a simple practice like breath awareness as a concentration practice, again and again and again, I assume most, if not all of you, know what I'm talking about there. That's just to come back to the breath again and again. Uh, as you do that, that refines and strengthens the mind so that it can be much more of an adequate mirror, so that it's stable. It, it can become unwavering. It can become like a steady flame. That's the point. So that when there's a reaction, you're not bowled over by it. Right now, we have certain strong reactions to people who are troublesome in our life uh, or to situations that are so powerful that it constantly overwhelms what little wisdom we have. And so you hear someone like me say this, and it sounds unapproachable. How could I possibly be aware of fear or my anger at Uncle X or whatever, or my boss? And to begin with, I would say, you're right. And that's why we're, go, we're training the mind, just as if you were an athlete, so that the mind can be fit in order to be able to see what it has to see to get free. This is all about liberation. And it doesn't drop on you. Liberation doesn't come from a cloud. No teacher can give it to you. There's no guru or savior. If you find one, good. I haven't. I've had a few I consider great teachers. And one of the things that was great about them is that they made it very clear that my happiness was my responsibility. They could point the way, and the Buddha said that, but they couldn't do it for us. No one can. A parent can't do it for a child, no matter how much the parent loves the child. We know how deep that can be. Okay, so relationship. Now, when you come into meditative circles, typically we think of, if you hear self-knowledge, I mean, if I sit enough, then I'll really get to know myself. Just sit until the cows come home. If you do as more retreats for longer periods of time in more remote places, <laughs> with more dietary and weather hardship, sexual deprivation, and all kinds of other deprivation, then I'll really get to know myself. Well, there's no question that the sitting practice is very special and precious. That's why we do a lot of it. But it can also be um, backfire. It can be misused very easily and often is, in my opinion. Self-knowledge, a lot of it does come up on the cushion. You just sit there and breathe and as you become calm, what's inside of you starts to appear. 
you know, uh, you put cashew nuts into a grinder, you get cashew butter, not peanut butter. And what comes out is what's in you. It's as simple as that. And if you're calm enough and this capacity to receive our experience as it becomes wider and stronger, to receive our experience in a non-judgmental way, non-reactive, this is crucial. We're not for or against it, just the way a mirror is not. It's, also, it's not detachment. It's not cold detachment. There's actually, when this gets cooking, it's quite a bit of affection. You could even say love in it. After all, it's you getting to know you. But at first, we treat it like there's some alien force that we have to... And so we're learning how to be intimate in a non-judgmental way to, our, to ourselves, our own experience. Um, let me give you a, 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 a few examples to, to make this more concrete. Uh, and also what we're up against, how difficult it is. I'm not saying this is easy, but part of why it's difficult is because we're not encouraged to do this. It has not been part of our education. And so we just go along again and again and again, living out of reaction, which is mechanical, conditioned. I ho hope those words mean something to you. Let me give you very, some very ordinary examples. I'll give you a few from my own life. Uh, my father, the last, in his last three or four years, um, of course I think, that what I'm about to say, of course I think this about him, was a very intelligent, alert, sharp person. You couldn't get anything past him, and that was what was hard about growing up with him. Uh, he, would, he was like W.C. Field, puncturing every little, I don't know if those of you a different generation, this was a, uh, a comedian, you know, you're supposed to love children, pick them up and hug them, and they'd come with balloons, and he would take his cigar and look around and just puncture it, you know. Uh, my father would do that to all my illusions. That's why it turned out this way. <laughs> okay. Could be having a much better time in delusion and fantasy instead <laughs> constant diet of reality. Gosh. Anyway, uh, he developed Alzheimer's disease. And... He, he was put into a nursing home because he was dangerous to himself, mainly, and to everyone living there. And the first months that I would visit him, I visited him very, very often, as often as I could. Um, putting it in the language that I've just suggested, I was very reactive. Uh, my reactions were sorrow, pain, uh, the, the jolt of seeing the contrast between how he used to be and how he was now, where he didn't make sense. Sometimes he didn't even know who I was, or other family would, would mistake uh, his daughter for his mother, or, you know, it just, and I would sit there, and all of us, we would have re reactions which were just human. Uh, here's someone we loved, and uh, he was so different. At a certain point, and I realized I wasn't using the practice. I knew all about the words that I'm using now, but I, I wasn't using them. Uh, once I started to pay attention to my reactions, things changed. First of all, when I found out that he had Alzheimer's disease, I read, being that kind of person, I read a, a lot of, on what, what is this Alzheimer's stuff, reading medical stuff and talking to my doctor friends and trying to find out what it was. So I, I knew a lot about Alzheimer's. And so for a while, when I would look at my father, there was a, fil a diagnostic filter through which I was seeing him. 
I wasn't seeing my father as he was then and there because uh, I was watching to see all the different characteristics that definitely fit what this diagnostic category had. Uh, also, I started to see how much I couldn't see how he was right now because my mind was in the past comparing him as to how he used to be, longing for him to be back there, not accepting the present, and as a result, not, f not fully with him. There's a strange but happy ending to this. I mean, it's strange because it's not happy-happy, but it's the best you can do when someone has Alzheimer's. Um, at a certain point, with a I started to pay attention to whatever reaction I had to him. And it started to fall away, lose its power. And that will, this is not unique to this situation. If you become more sensitive to your reactions, which are mechanical, they just come out. We can't help it. If you prick someone, they bleed, no matter who they are. Okay. So someone insults you, you react with a, a sock in the jaw, someone else reacts by running away, a third person starts sobbing, a fourth person uh, tries to explain it away. We all have different reactions, but they just happen. And then we identify with them. We identify with those reactions. That's what I meant by we give immense authority to it, and we worship them, because that we make self out of it. That's who I am. I'm this person who just had this reaction. Now, if you know anything about the Buddhist way, uh, one of the main insights is insight into that to see that that uh, doesn't hold up. But you have to see it uh, for yourself. Um, the biggest renunciation, as far as I can tell, for me certainly, and as I look around, is just one person's big fat opinion. Renunciation is big in spiritual circles. You don't know, have one meal a day, maybe four grains of rice, uh, just have three outfits, uh, don't handle money, no sex, or even in, for lay people, uh, somehow have old tattered clothes, makes you more spiritual or holy, and uh, to renounce all kinds of things that used to give you pleasure and, uh, and happiness. To me, there's really only one re renunciation, and that's the fundamental, and that's the hardest one, and that's to renounce this tendency to identify with everything that happens as being me. Where we turn the, it's as if the whole universe is about me. It isn't. Did you know that? <laughs> I just figured it out. Uh, it, uh, much of it is happening. It's just happening. Uh, do you have control of what the mind's going to think and feel? It's all, it's an unfolding. It's happening. Okay. Uh, to begin to observe that rather than to identify with it and get some of the sustenance and that time, security, and joy out of contributing to creating a sense of me. There's something in us that loves to be me, even when it's awful, even when we're in pain. We hold on to our pain because even though it's a horrible drama, at least we're the star of it. <laughs> we're playing the leading role. If it's poor me and self-pity, that's better than freedom or idea of what freedom might be. Or the conditioning so powerful that we need a lot of help to come to see that this isn't working. Uh, I think a, a premise of the Buddha's teaching is really not implied. It's said over and over again. The ego can never really be happy. I don't know if you've seen that yet. We're just, if you're busy patching it up, trying to make it a kinder ego, a more gentle ego, a nonviolent ego, a, a vegetarian ego, on and on, 
You can fix it up a bit. There's no question you can use meditation to fix it up a bit. But the ancient image is still a good one. It's, uh, fix, it's decorating the prison cell. So we're still in prison, but we have nice drapes <laughs> and, and some new furniture, maybe a nice color TV. But we can't get, we're still prisoners. Okay. Uh, Dharma is to be free. And so uh, the question, who am I? At first, the answers in Dharma practice or in awareness practice are similar to what you would learn in therapy or just on your own by paying attention. You see, well, I'm the kind of a, an angry person or this person or that person. But more and more, uh, who you, what you begin to see is who you aren't. That is none of it. That's what I mean by not identifying with what's happening. That's a, that is renunciation. It's not pushing it away. It's allowing it to be there. But when you're aware of something with equanimity, this evenness, non-reactive, unbiased quality of attention, you're not for or against it, uh, you begin to take the power out of it. Now, that power, as the power leaves that, you find yourself in another space that is very silent and clear. Now, that space is right here at this moment. Here, right at this moment, it's just at the very threshold, just barely underneath the layers of thought and worry and planning and, and moods and images and fantasies and dreams and memories. And right just a little bit below that is the beginnings of this vast mind that's clear and silent. It's right here in this room. No one got shortchanged. But if, if we spend our whole, our whole life scurrying around on the surface, uh, we're not going to taste it much. We will we'll never know if whether what it's cracked up to be is true. Okay, so now let's go to my dad again. By paying attention to, to the reactions, his reactions, uh, jokes that made no sense. He used to be quite a funny man, but uh, he would just laugh and we would all look at each other. We didn't know what he was talking about. Okay, as I started to let go of, the, as the power left the reactions, there was just the mind was just clear, and there was a direct connection with my father. The love was just as much as, as ever, maybe more. And he felt it. And when he laughed, I laughed. This bothered my mother and my sister and my... <laughs> you know, and and at the, we'd go out, and they would actually scold me. You know, and say, like, it made no sense. How could you laugh? And I said, well, where's the law that says that it has to make sense? You know, he's having a good time, so I just joined him. I don't know what he, I didn't know what he was talking about either. They, they never quite accepted that. It gets worse. <laughs> My father, who was a big sport his whole life, even when he was poor, he was always very generous, suddenly became a skinflint, just worrying about money all the time. And, and he had a, a, a recurrent lament, which was driving the nurses crazy, which is, I have no money on me. Can, will somebody give me, all I want is 10 bucks to put it. He said, I reach back for, for $10 in my back pocket and all I feel is my ass. <laughs> you know, there's no money. I need, I'll feel better. And, and the nurse, when she heard it the first time, got me aside and said, don't you dare give him any money. You know, it'll just go down the toilet or it'll be in the laundry. And it's just a throwing away money. And so we all, we listened to what the nurse said. And then with the, when the mind gets clear, clearer, I'm not saying I'm, it's a big enlightened mind, but clearer, not, not coming from reactions or history, but clear seeing. It's not everything that all my attitudes and psyche about my father, but just clear. 
you could see here was somebody suffering because he didn't have a piece of paper that had a 10 written on it to put in his pocket. So finally, after a few weeks of our stupidity, I gave him $10, and my family nearly strangled me for it. They just felt it was idiotic. And he was so happy. Now, I don't know if it lasted very long. Maybe, maybe after we left, maybe two hours, and then it was flushed down the toilet. didn't matter. It, was much, it brought much more happiness to him than the pharmaceuticals they were giving him, which was costing us a fortune. This was really, we were definitely getting our money's worth. Okay. Now, the only reason I was able to do that is when the mind becomes quiet and clear, uh, you have what is called a response, not a reaction. Reaction is mechanical. If you have good conditioning, you had nice loving parents, you went to a nice school, you have good conditioning, you're kind, you're, but it's still conditioning. It's automatic. Okay. When the mind gets quiet, there's tremendous room for freshness, creativity, real compassion, and of course wisdom. Now, what these teachings are saying is that in that silent mind, uh, the Tibetans, w one school of, t one uh, approach of Tibetan Buddhism refers to enlightenment as the great silence. I think it's a very good name for it. Um, because silence, I'm talking about the beginnings of a realm that is literally infinite. There's no end to it. Okay. That silence is just a word. Uh, there's an awakening of a new kind of intelligence in it. It's not the kind we already have, which also has its use. Logical, rational, one plus one equals two. That's great, too. This intelligence is intrinsic, and you can call it wisdom, you can call it compassion. Now, I, only, I know a lot of it indirectly, and I'll just tell you from my own experience how I know this is true. I'm not, again, I'm not saying I have some, I'm some big enlightened person. But when I've gone, done my own retreats and the mind has dwelled in silence for extended periods of time, at least more than I usually do, when I come off retreat and I have not been try cultivating metta or loving kindness or trying to be more compassionate or trying to see things more clearly, not at all. I've just been doing our same, for those who've been around the block a bit, our same goofy practice. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, in, out, in, out, in, out. I have found uh, just much more love. Oh, whoa, where did that come from? Uh, finally, meditation is an explosion of love. Uh, and it's not separate from wisdom. They're really the same thing. At first, it feels different. Love is one thing. Wisdom is another thing. And early teachings have it as a, a bird with two wings. Wisdom, compassion. But uh, that's preliminary because there, there are no distinctions like that in the silent mind. It's integral. And the, uh, when, when you start to tap that, you have the possibility of fresh and new responses to whatever the situation is. I'm just giving you one. I could give you a, a whole bunch of others from sisters who didn't talk to each other for 20 years, uh, and one is a meditator and one isn't, and how just doing this, just studying uh, the baggage that the meditating sister had about her other sister, who she hated. And it was mutual. They'd been driving each other crazy since childhood. Uh, just coming, letting go of that through seeing it, not as, a, not as an ideology. Everyone's letting go of everything these days. Uh, I think uh, it's not too convincing. It's a big word in Harvard Square now. I hear it a lot. It's catching up to organic. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of what it is is throwing away or 
or letting go of something you don't want anyway. Um, as that happens, the, your capacity uh, to see uh, is more available to you. In fact, uh, a lot of the practice is designed, we start off by, uh, here's an image for you, and I think I will just go a few, few minutes longer. Um, let's say of clouds and sky. It's just a metaphor. Don't get too cozy with it because it has limitations. When you sit to meditate, at first what you're watching is mainly clouds. I like, I don't like my fears, my anger, my loneliness, my loves, my uh, memories, uh, future aspirations, uh, fantasies, the stuff of mind, the whole scenery that's all coming in front of us again and again. If you can learn how to just, our practice here, a lot of it is learn how to just relax and enjoy the show. It's the greatest show on earth. It's your mind. It's much better than the circus. It is a circus. And just watch all these characters, some of them, where do they come from? I had a conversation going on by two people confidently speaking in some language I had, no, I had never heard. And it went on for hours. In the midst of a retreat, I'm just sitting here, I'm just sitting here. They, they had total coherence. They were just completely happy with their exchange. And I'm sitting there like on another planet. Uh, and some things come up. You think of yourself as a peaceful Buddhist peace fellowship, nonviolent, you know, uh, against this and against that. And suddenly Adolf Hitler shows up. You thought you were Mother Teresa. Well, she's there too. Everyone's there. And they come up. And the art is uh, for awareness to become that stable, become like a flame. And it's that attention, that flame of attention, that burns all this away. It dissolves it. And then what you come to is what's always been there, clear blue sky, beautiful. Um, let me give you a little homework and end, uh, end off there. We'll d there's more to be said about relationship. We'll pick it up next time. Uh, one way to practice this seeing relationship as mirrors through the art of listening. Uh, whatever the degree of listening is for each one of us, if you start to attend to how you listen to particular people, start off with simple things. See if you can listen to birds chirp. That's easy. Or a symphony. What you may find is your favorite symphony is on, and half the time is, oh yeah, I was, I was with... Uh, X or Y in Vienna when that was playing, and you know, oh, isn't it wonderful? But your your mind is cooking and uh, reminiscing, and uh, that that way is I, I, that isn't as good as the one I heard at Tanglewood. It was much better, and but it's still one of the end of how was it? Oh, just great. <laughs> but you can get to the point where you listen to it as pure sound, as if you even if you've heard uh, a Beethoven symphony or a Bach, uh, some of Bach, a thousand times, you can hear it as if for the first time. Maybe. Music lovers, real music lovers can do that anyway. But what we're learning is how to do that to listen to ourselves that way, with that quality of freshness. Um, so when you listen, I have a lot of, get a lot of practice in that because we give interviews and I listen to a fair number of people almost on a daily basis. Um, and so if I don't learn how to listen, uh, a lot of what I'm doing is not very helpful. Uh, and the main way that I've learned how to improve my listening is not through any text or workshop, is that I've watched how I do listen and, and seen 
how uh, the mind, how, how preoccupied the mind is. It's rehearsing what it's going to say, where it gets the gist of it. You know, wh why doesn't the person make it shorter? I already got it. You know, like, <laughs> or, uh, or you know, and there's all this uh, subtitles are going on. Uh, while you're listening, and you catch a lot of it, so that it seems like a coherent conversation, because you say something back and then something. But when you listen, real listening is when there's nothing else but listening, uh, total listening. We'll, we'll get into uh, what, what does it mean to relate to someone? Uh, and what does it mean to relate to ourselves? We've just begun to scratch the surface, but the same attitude that I used to listen to my father which enabled me to relate to him in a very different way, which definitely improved his condition, certainly his connection with me. He felt joined by me, rather than uh, I was part of the enemy. Uh, that same quality of attention, can we listen to ourselves? And the listening, as a Chinese uh, aphorism, when the mind gets quiet, the heart can listen. Um, so that comes by taking it on as a practice. Uh, let me read you. This is a Mahayana. Uh, it's often chanted or said, and this translation is by Thich Nhat Hanh. This rendering. We evoke your name, Avalokiteshvara. That's uh, a kind of a personification of a certain quality of compassion. We aspire to learn your way on what this personification is famous for is listening to the, the cries, the suffering in the world. We evoke your name, Alokiteshvara. We aspire to learn your way of listening in order to help relieve the suffering in the world. You know how to listen in order to understand. We evoke your name in order to practice listening with all our attention and open-heartedness. We will sit and listen without any prejudice. We shall sit and listen without judging or reacting. We will sit and listen so attentively that we will be able to hear what the other person is saying and also what has been left unsaid. We know that just by listening deeply, we already alleviate a great deal of pain and suffering in the other person. Um, you'll learn a lot about yourself if you pay attention as to how you listen. Um, break. Those of you who want to leave, please do so. It's a short break. I'd like to uh, have more time for questions. It'll be about a half hour for questions, for those who need to know that. You don't want to listen to each other. You just want to hear the, the featured speaker. <laughs> Probably learn more from each other.
And I had your book with me, and it opened up to the page of a student that had told you a story about a woman that she worked with that she brought up the Addis Huxley book, The Art of Seeing. It was the biggest gift Larry. Oh, great. Not? Please. Yeah. Um, one of the things I pra- in my practice I try to pay attention to is dealing with the fear reaction. Yes. And a part of that is to drop the storyline and stay with the energy. I yes. Find that, wait a minute, I find that energy intense when that happens. Yes. And that energy kind of draws me back to the story sometimes. Yes. So I get caught in a catch-22. Yes. But then the idea is to sit with that. You talk about that feeling. Is, when I get drawn back to the old story with it, then I won't get that fresh look. You're talking this evening about a fresh look. Should that energy suddenly take on a fresh characteristic or... There's no shoulds here. I mean, no, let's take fear, because that's a big one for all of us. Is there anyone who doesn't know what fear is? <laughs> okay. But th- understand, it's what you were really saying. It's the energy. It's not the word F-E-A-R. Uh, that energy courses through the whole body. Typically, if you have fear, there are very strong sensations in the body. They're unmistakable. The heart starts pounding a certain way. The pulse changes. Our posture changes, depending on how strong the, the fear is. And the thoughts are all disabling. They're terribly disabling thoughts, which are t- they're, uh, d- how it's going to get worse, how you're going to die, how, uh, and that feeds on it. And before, before you know it, we have torment. Okay. So what you're suggesting, uh, what you describe, is a, a very good way to practice. You focus in on the bodily, the energy of fear in the body. Okay. If you can stay very attentive to it, undivided, then the storyline doesn't have a chance to really get going. Uh, you, it's not like you're holding it out, but just the, quali- the flame of attention keeps the, uh, the momentum of it, or the, the intensity of it, keeps uh, all those thoughts which feed the flame, not, not the flame of awareness, the flame of, of, of fear, uh, they're not there. And so it's just what's there. Once thought comes in, and we identify with it, then it becomes a, a ten-alarm fire, and we're overwhelmed by it. Now, the most important thought of all of them, the one that makes that is the most uh, damaging for us, is the thought that this is happening to me. Okay, uh, that is what's happening is the body is a certain way. Now, if any of you are really new to the practice, this may sound strange, but you can get to the point where you can observe the energy of fear, throb, throb, whatever it is. I, I'm not going to use words too much. Uh, and you're so attentive to it, uh, and you're not feeding it with ideas. Look, uh, if you, the next time you feel afraid, check this out to see if it's true. Not all fear, but most, or let's say a huge amount of fear, the soil out of which the fear grows is thinking. And it's generally about the future or it's about something in the past that's going to happen again in the future. Um, it's, you're okay if you look around and you say, all's well, I'm fine, I'm safe, everything's okay. But the mind, uh, at that point, meditation is out the window. Uh, at that point, you're getting lost in your ideas as to what is going to happen to you. And often the origin of the fear is there. We have thoughts about a future. We hear, well, the terrorists are going to now, they're going to start in on shopping malls and, you know, uh, what? And then there's, uh, it's going to happen to us, it will happen to my children and so forth. Okay, awareness can see all of this. 
Now, sometimes there is wisdom in fear, intelligence in it. So you have to honor that. Sometimes a fear is telling you, is, is guiding you to a correct course of action, an intelligent course of action. You know, obvious ones, you know, sort of you're about to step off a cliff and you're frightened. That's nature's way of protecting us. But there are other ways in which fears are telling you, uh, be careful, you know. Uh, but for the most part, what we do is again and again, it becomes compulsive. Uh, again and again and again, it becomes obsessional. And we build these scenarios which are exhausting. They also block us. Fear uh, stunts our ability to grow, whether even in a worldly way or spiritually or inwardly, because uh, there are so many things that we can't do because we're afraid of them. Um, if you don't mind using your question for, uh, to go a little... One good way to begin to practice with fear is start with smaller ones. Like, let's say you have a, a little bit of shyness when you're with people you don't know too well. Uh, it's not overwhelming, but you can feel it's a bit of awkwardness. Uh, and you could call it fear. A fear of how will they see me? Will I know what to say? Uh, start practicing, can I be awake with those re their reactions, like what I was talking about. See if you can be, uh, stay, why do you, you, you don't have to say, excuse me, I can't continue this conversation, give me five minutes and go and meditate. <laughs> uh, what? No, no, I wouldn't. That, that'll make you a bigger misfit than you may already be. Uh, that's not the, Dharma is not about becoming a big misfit. Okay. Um, so the awareness uh, uh, we, you can learn how to be aware if you start with something a little bit more manageable. Okay, now let's say that sounds nice, and by all means do it, but then let's say fear comes uninvited. You know, it's not necessarily we want it to be there, but there it is, and it's in our face, and it's, and it's really ablaze, however it got started. Let's say you weren't there as the thoughts started, and then you believed the thoughts, and you identified with them, and then the body starts going like this, and then more thoughts about the conditioning, uh, and before you know it, you have torment, you have a, a nightmare going, okay. Uh, with practice, you can, even then, you can remember to turn to something very, very simple, like the breathing. Uh, it's, it's sort of like that safe place in the midst of the storm. In, out, in, out. It has a way of grounding you, of just bringing you back. What you're doing with the body itself is good, but then you find, let's say, you can do it for just so long, and then uh, you're swallowed up by, by the, this energy of fear, and you, you start doing everything that I'm saying. Okay, so we don't have to swallow the whole ocean in one gulp. At that point, it might be useful to shift over to the breathing as a practice. In other words, it's not denial or repression. You're saying, fear, terror, I know you're there. Thank you very much, but for right now, I can't look you in the eye anymore. But that doesn't mean you have to stop practicing. You can do walking meditation. You can do metta, loving-kindness meditation. Um, you can do the breath. Uh, something that keeps you on track so that you regain some stability again. And then you may want to then, once again, receive it if it's still there. Uh, it's something that you can learn to do. It's like anything else. If you practice, you will learn how to do it. If you don't, you won't. Okay, so that little by little... Uh, first of all, your overall quality of attention is developing if you're doing this practice. Uh, and those of you who are rather new, you have to understand that uh, there's quite a range in, just think of any other skill that you have, how it may have taken years to just to learn how to really cook well or to dance or whatever the skill is. Uh, 
this is the skill of self-understanding, of self-mastery. It's not the easiest one. In fact, you might say it's the most difficult one. But it can be learned, and you can learn how to, little by little, approach fear in a friendly way, begin to see that it's workable, that it, is, it doesn't have to be, oh my God, because a lot of what happens is we become afraid of fear. Now, another thing that can be helpful, it wouldn't surprise me if at a certain point, when you, just prior to getting caught up in thoughts again, there was a resistance that you really had enough of it. And it would be, in, okay, it's not to overwhelm the resistance, or the, but shift to the resistance. And even at the beginning, you can look at that. Resistance here, what I mean by that is that you're seeing clearly just how much you don't want to see fear. It's not that you have to rub your face in the fear. You realize, I will not. I don't care what the Buddha said. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Fine. It's not that we're pushing you into it. Begin to see how strong the urge is to avoid that. And as you become more at peace with the resistance, that starts to get weaker. Okay, and as it gets weaker, little by little, you can see that the energy of fear, like anything else, you can learn to observe it. Now, it's workable because it's observable. Now, another thing is apply the, one of the main teachings of the Buddha, impermanence. Uh, as if, let's say the energy of fear is there and it's really cooking. If you're able to attend to it with some consistency, continuity, what you'll see at a certain point is that it starts, the, the, it isn't there forever, or the fear doesn't stay forever. It starts to peter out, lose its momentum, and then it's gone. And then it's replaced by relief or whatever is next. If you see that a few times, you begin to see that the nature of fear is that it's impermanent. Closely following that is another wisdom lesson that grows out of it. You see that it's empty, empty of substantiality because when fear is there it feels like it's a mountain and it feels like it's going to be there forever and it feels like we are totally and completely helpless there's nothing we can do as you if you if you're able to go as far as i've just said and begin to see it once or twice a few times that it's something that appears and disappears like anything else then your relationship to it changes forever and then the next time fear comes up uh you're 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 not uh, on the run automatically and so little by little but you have to work skillfully it's not just one some days uh, it's best to acknowledge that you can't do it and just go somewhere else but here's the, the principle that we were trying that was being emphasized this evening that's a reaction the fear is a reaction as you become able to become aware of that energy of fear it starts to lose its power and in a given moment it may even fall away you find that there's nothing to be afraid of. You're okay. What it's replaced by in that next moment is the clear mind. Now, that clear mind can then examine perhaps what it is you're afraid of. Maybe it's the interview for a job. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's fear of death. But you, if the mind is clear, it's a different quality to the seeing of the same threatening, frightening object that caused the fear. Do you see what I'm getting at? So you have to understand this is a process of uh, of learning. Uh, the other day I read something, uh, Goya, the great uh, artist, was quoted in his 90s. He was asked about the art of painting, and he said, uh, I'm still learning how to do it. Oh. Uh, I was very moved by that, and there's no question that this is the same thing. Uh, for example, 
have I mastered, I've written a book on death, have I mastered the art of dying? Well, check with me when the time comes for me to check out. <laughs> I could say yes, but I don't, ha I don't have much, put much credence to it. When I die, I'll let you know. You know, so that the learning is going on all the time. And that, now, for some people, that's disappointing. It's sort of like, oh, isn't there a technique, a method? You do it for like five years, then you're okay, and then I can do what I really want to do. Uh, this becomes really powerful when, you, when it becomes more a way of living. It's not a method or a technique. And in a certain way, it's not even an ism. It's not Buddhism. Uh, Dharma doesn't even mean Buddhism. That's uh, in the English language, unfortunately. It's not an ism. It's not a belief system or a new ideology. Uh, one of the meanings of Dharma is the way things are, the kind of natural lawfulness of things. We're studying the lawfulness of how suffering is put together, uh, etc. Uh, so uh, you learn this. It's the, what I'm trying to emphasize the difference between a reaction and a response. A reaction is mechanical. It comes out of our conditioning. A response is something that's fresh and uh, it's, not, it's creative and it's new. It comes out of this deep place and I can't tell you what it's going to be because that, if I could, it wouldn't be what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? Okay. My neck requires that someone ask a question from this side of the room. <coughs> Thank you. Yes. And our last assignment was to uh, be aware of reactions. Yes, good. So right, right from the same ballpark. Good. And the, the, the homework he gave was rather simple. It was like, notice if something pleasant happens, avoid your reactions. Notice if something unpleasant happens, avoid your reactions. And of all the assignments he gave in, during the course, that to me was the hardest. I agree. Uh, I actually went through about two and a half days of Montezuma's Revenge, eating practically nothing to try and get my system to recover. And for most of that time, I was not able to see my reaction. I mean, I was sort of swallowed up in the unpleasantness and trying to be as anonymous as I could. But after it was over, I thought, so. Why couldn't I? So it feels like there's some kind of foggy blanket that I put over myself to not notice the reactions in the first place. So it's sort of a beginner's question, but how do I get into this practice if I can? I wouldn't call it a beginner's question. I think it's something we all face. Uh, but what you're getting at uh, is why the human race is the way it is, uh, and why relationship is. Uh, so troubled, and why we, uh, because one of the, the, the hardest things to do is to watch your reactions in relationship. Uh, there's a lot of fear in relationship. I know people uh, who are, I'm thinking of one in particular, who we, I know him for many, many years. We, would, we practiced together under the same Zen master in Korea and here in Japan. Uh, his, he has an, an amazing dedication and devotion and courage, as long as it's a formal retreat. You know, uh, some of the retreats are quite austere, especially in Asia. Uh, in the snow, in the cold, not heated well enough, uh, inadequate food, sitting for, you know, getting up early in the morning, sitting till late at night, 
doing everything together in a group. No choice. You have to sit every sitting. If you don't, the monk, a monk runs after you and gets you to... Okay. And he was super-duper, just a terrific, uh, dedicated, and then later on, on his own, uh, sitting alone for months on end, very heroic. And, and a, a split between that and the rest and relationship, which was a trail of severely wounded women, again and again and again. Uh, and it's not like he was proud of it. It was a form of torment for him that is somehow in this area he couldn't seem to uh, carry over the, the incredible. And at one point I asked him, I said, when you're sitting on the other end of the ta table in the morning having coffee with your wife and there's some, something going on that needs attention, you have such commitment to when you do it on a retreat and under such arduous... And he said, I don't have the same conviction that it's as important. I also am more afraid of the emotions that come up with my... And it's been more than one... You know, it's been not just once. It's been a, a trail of it. Now, that's a, a kind of a deep problem. Some of us have deep wounds. Okay, But the principle... Uh, I can't fully explain it, but I know some of it is... Uh, the conditioning is very, very strong... Uh, it's also, we equate that with living. Like a lot of it has to do with, with thinking. We don't know that there's any other way to live. So the, the, no, there's no incentive. We don't, no one's telling us, oh, your reactions, are, they're just reactions, they're mechanical. We identify with them. That's the stuff out of which we build a sense of self. Because some of the reactions are very good, positive. Okay, so... When you start in, and let's say uh, you're given a homework assignment to just watch your uh, reactions, you have a lifetime of not doing that. And, and a lifetime of... And also, this is something that's inescapable in Buddhist circles. CIMC is dedicated. I, I really mean dedicated. I know when uh, we started this center, what I had in mind, I really do, to breaking through that. I don't know, if, I think in some small ways, I hope we've contributed to it, but when one of the, the main problems is when you think of a Buddhism and maybe all spirituality, uh, relationship is something that you don't think of that as particularly spiritual, you know, or even the body. You know, that, the real thing is this. After all, when we look around, the Buddha is always sitting. 99, you don't see him... Uh, sitting at a table having coffee with his, w there's no wife, but you know, or, or vacuuming, or you know, he, he's always like this. And we have one, he's practicing 24 hours a day, even in the snow, in the garden there. Okay, so the, uh, Jesus is like this, the Buddha is like this. Uh, the, root, the root metaphor is this is what the real thing is. This is the holy life, is this. Okay. But now, even if you're a very committed meditator, even if you are a monk or a nun, and uh, most of your life is going to be off the cushion. Okay, let's talk about us. We're lay people. There's no question that most of our life, even if you sit a lot, how much is a lot? So if we don't learn how to live in daily life, this is just going to be a little Band-Aid. It's not going to really help all that much. It'll be a bit of stress reduction. You'll be calmer, no question about it. You'll have a bit of a better attitude. But the practice is designed to go way beyond that. It really is. Okay, so we need a new attitude. Now, some of that is the attitude in many countries in Asia is that the monks do the real work, not even the nuns. They're the ones who do the real work. Everyone else feeds them and takes care of them. 
Okay? I'm not mocking that. It's just a social cultural pattern. Sometimes it has worked out well, but that means 50% of the human race or more is not really encouraged to be serious about practice. I don't mean just women, but I mean it's more than 50% lay people. Okay. What's changed in the United States, since we do everything different, uh, is there's real energy among lay people. Can you, do you know that? Uh, and uh, some of what we have to learn is uh, how to use lay life so that it has the same dignity. I don't mean all life has dignity unless you take it away. Um, that your practice can have the same dignity that, that a monk or a nun can have. It has nothing to do, finally, with what your clothing or your commitment. Or, uh, but that means we must learn how to, li- how to use relationship as part of self-knowledge to understand ourselves. That, so that, let's say, uh, we think of, oh, what would really be hard is to sit for three months in a monastery on just two meals a day. And spirit. Uh, I think, for many of us, facing ourselves in relationship is harder. I'll just speak for myself. I've done lots of long retreats. Six months, not, I've been by myself in the mountains, sitting in a little you know, thing. People pass food through a stone door. I don't see them by myself. You know, uh, in Korea, I don't even speak the language. You know, uh, you know, very heroic. And then a woman comes in. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I've gone a little beyond that. I'm exaggerating. I'm not that bad. But, uh, but that's because I've cared about it. Because if practice becomes, if there, practice is not designed to be an escape from life, but it can become a, an escape from life very easily. Uh, you can divorce yourself from the rest of your life and live for your retreats, for coming to CIMC, oh, this is such a beautiful place, and then go home and you're a jerk. Not, you know, because you don't care enough about what your, the rest of your life is made up of, which is small stuff taking out the garbage, washing dishes. Listen to your child talk about something that you're, you're too tired. You've just been working all day. And how can you get into that reserve gas tank and listen? So we have different kinds of challenges. And then the sitting challenge is the same, but there's more to practice than sitting. So I don't know, but can you begin to learn that art so that you don't have to be so overwhelmed? Definitely. What you're telling me is familiar. It's not like I... Uh, skip that step, honestly. Do you believe me? Yes, I absolutely do. Good. I, I, I do put a lot of energy into trying to be there during the day. Uh, it's just this particular thing, the, the reaction piece, is harder than life. We had an assignment on notice that you're suffering and where you're suffering. That I didn't have any trouble with. But often they're the same thing. Okay, but you know, look at how much resistance you have to doing it again, uh, because that's what I, I hear you saying. You don't really reactions are hard for you to look at. No. Consciously, no. But I mean, it must be true because I'm It sounds obviously that it is true, but it's it's what you are getting at. That is, you may have resistance to doing this, but uh, you know. There are a lot of fancy, not fancy, but technical terms in Sanskrit and Pali. They're, they're beautiful, precise ways of talking about it. But there's one very important term. It's just ordinary English that if you, if you hear it and you'll read, interest. If you're, are you interested in being sane? <laughs> are you interested in not suffering so much? 
Do you want more quality in your life? Do you under, maybe you haven't seen yet that your, the, the torment comes out of your mind. It all comes out of your mind. The joy comes out of your mind. And we're looking for it out there. We're looking for it in any number of ways out there. By all means, go to uh, Fiji and you know, do it. That's, it's not that. But here's the real, uh, you, you have to, we're psychonauts. You know, do you see what I'm getting at? If there's interest, if you understand, for example, I'll give you a turning point in my own practice, and I don't want to make this too absolute, but relatively very, very true. Um, there came a point where I was much more interested, some of it from challenge and also from seeing the immense value of doing what we're talking about, uh, where that became more interesting to me, more appealing, than escaping and getting a certain pseudo-satisfaction from the escape. Going off into some fantasy or running to the refrigerator or flipping on the TV set, and then, you know, it's gone. Forget about Michael's homework. Just make up anything, you know. But uh, the point is, at a certain point, I didn't want to do that. I preferred to be with what I didn't want to be with. But that grew out of learning, or I learned the immense value of it. No one... I learned it myself from my own experience. So I want to do it. I don't need a workshop on making dinner on time. You can tell I like to eat. Maybe it's because you're here, Didi. <laughs> um, so it's, if you're not interested, and maybe as you hear this, you feel disappointed. Well, I, don't, I don't have a burning interest in self-understanding. I just want to get calm a little. It's all right. Don't worry about it. What brings you to the cushion isn't necessarily what keeps you on the cushion. I would say many, if not most people, don't come for the reason I'm talking about. And that as you, if you keep practicing, the whole vocabulary of motives changes from inside. When you start to realize you thought it was just, well, it was just to feel a little bit more calm, there's much more to it than that. But on your own, you'll want to do it. Don't do it because someone is, uh, I'm not exhorting you to do it. I'm just telling you that if you have interest, motivation, that's more than half the battle. One more question, please. Please. Would it be possible to become enlightened without ever going on the retreat? If you just stated all that daily... I, I don't want to ask, answer that question. <laughs> where is that... As we used to say, and maybe people still talk, where is that question coming from? No, seriously. What, what, what is that... What, get quiet for a moment. Do some, what, what, is, what do you really want... What do you want to know? What are you apprehensive about? Supposing I say no. No, because it seems like the, the important work is done when you're not on retreat. You're just talking about No, I'm not saying that. Oh, okay. It's a good question. I apologize. Here's a, a, a fallacy that, that happens. I've seen it happen many, many times. Look, don't take what I'm saying to, to use that. Let me tell you just from a teaching point of view. If you put a lot of energy into the daily life piece, which is what I'm talking about now, then people use that to not sit. Oh, great, I can just, you know, put on Good Morning America and sip my uh, coffee or tea and, you know, I'll sit for seven minutes. Well, I don't need this 45 minutes. Or He said, you know, daily life, and now I got daily life and I'll do that. If you really then, then you see that, I mean, I've seen it in groups that we have, then you put a lot of energy into the sitting part more. Then they feel daily life is not that important. That's, you know, just humdrum, routine. Uh, so how do understand that prior to sitting, Vipassana, Buddhism, CIMC, there's life. So we're learning how to live. There are particular forms, one of which is sitting. It's, 
It's an invaluable invention that the ancients came up with. Let's just look at it practically. You sit, you sit here, hopefully intentionally, and it's a dramatic simplification of your reality. You have nothing else to do but to be with yourself. You're not eating or talking or writing or watching. or you just 100%, at least potentially, with yourself. That's a useful thing to do. Now, if that's all you do... Now, I think that sometimes people break through at a very deep level. It has happened. And a lot of that does spill over into daily life. But the challenge is daily life doesn't go away. You can, so, so that uh, when it's time to sit, wholeheartedly sit. And if you can get away on retreats, by all means. But in any case, life is prior to sitting or IMS or retreats or all these forms that humans have invented. But frankly, it'd be good if you can do some retreats. Yeah? Okay. I have to tell another Maury Stein story and then, and then I'm going to let you go. It, it's, a dar- it's actually Dharma teaching, and it was very, very helpful for me. Uh, I was teaching at the University of Chicago, and Maury Stein, he, Professor Stein, excuse me, uh, he, that, he, was, he came to give every year in the social sciences, my field was social psychology, there was some eminent professor was invited to come and give the blah, 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 J. Rank, uh, Frothingham talk on social, uh, social sciences. So Maury was invited, he came from Brandeis University, and he gave the talk, and uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of students and teachers, we were all listening to him. And it was a really fine talk. At one point he described research that he was doing. And he said, we're studying poverty, where was it, in the South End, North End? We're in Boston. He said, and we have, uh, you know, you can do it better than I am. We have an anthropologist and psychologist and clinical psychologist and psychiatric social workers on this huge budget. How much budget? A million or 500? A couple of million bucks. And we have a huge research team, you know, and we're studying poverty, you know, in Boston. And he went on and on. You know, everyone's getting sucked in. And then at a certain point, he said he realized, what are we doing here? Let's just give him the money. You don't remember that? Oh, okay. And another one, and this is, uh, you can all go home. Uh, at the time, there was a sociologist named Talcott Parson who had a very elaborate, I don't know if he's in vogue anymore, conceptual abstract structure about society and its workings, and he coined a whole bunch of technical terms and so forth. And Maury just made fast shrift of it. He said, if you can't translate a concept into Yiddish, it's probably not true. <laughs> Okay, but this is the outcome. I resigned my position at, at the University of Chicago and I switched over to Brandeis, do you remember? And it was the wisest thing I ever did. Okay, can we have a few moments of silence, please? It won't be long. Perhaps it's safe to say that we spend much, if not most, of our life 
in the future or the past. And now and then we're like tourists, we drop into the present moment. We just visit. Practice is designed for us to more and more live in the present moment, which is all we really have, to live in real time rather than psychological time. And from now, now and then to, to visit the, the past and the future when it's sensible, there are times to use the past and the future. It's not eliminated. And so we're learning that. It's another way of saying everything I said tonight. May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.